0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Toby Muse, and he wrote a book in 2020, published in 2020. The title of the book is Kilo, Inside the Deadliest Cocaine Cartels, From the Jungles to the Streets. Uh, really excellently written book. I like his style and his approach, and he can talk more about that. His website is his full name, www.tobymuse.com, and he traces the kind of... Uh, growing cocaine following a kilo does the title of the book from the inside and really uh, very well written so highly recommend it. so toby muse are you there absolutely and thank you for the invite i'm looking forward to a discussion me too so thanks a lot for agreeing to the interview for people who may not have heard your background can you talk about your kind of journalistic background you spent a lot of time in south america and what led you to write this book kilo
1: so yes uh, i
0: left university i moved to argentina setting out on a
1: kind of career of trying to be a foreign correspondent and you know in my mind being a foreign correspondent really meant you know I mean, you're setting out you're a young man you want adventure right and part of being a foreign correspondent in my mind always did mean covering wars i never wanted to be the war reporter who goes from war to war to war and i still don't really like that um but being a foreign correspondent was you were out in these exotic locations and at times you were covering wars. So I was in Argentina and at the top of that continent yeah. was Colombia. Colombia was in this brutal civil war that was pitting this Marxist rebellion against a far right death squads and this government. And it was this three way and it was the center of the cocaine uh, trade. So and when you thought about the Colombian guerrillas, When you imagine that, you're really thinking of the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. They wore guerrilla uniforms, men and women carrying AK-47s. And it was this amazing opportunity to go cover this war and also be in a very kind of warm, embracing society. It's kind of hard to explain, but there is something about the fact of you can go cover this war, really cover the war up front, but then go home and uh, sorry not home but then that night go to the local village and dance salsa and drink rum and it was this kind of all overpowering experience for a young man and so that's how I end up in Colombia I spend about 50 just over 15 years in Colombia covering the cocaine trade in that time I also covered the wars in Syria I covered the wars in Iraq I covered one of the coups in Venezuela against Hugo Chavez but mainly I was covering South America and always in the background was this idea of the cocaine trade. Unfortunately, so much of Colombia's misery and its problems is tied into this cocaine trade. So it was always there in the background. And I, by the time I was leaving Colombia, when you've spent a long time in a country, you want something quite physical to represent that time you spent. It's kind of hard to describe, but you don't want those memories just to have been for nothing. You want something that you can just kind of put together and say, this sums up my time, a book, a serious documentary, something that will last. Because, you know, life is ephemeral and memories are even more ephemeral. So you want to kind of just put it down. So I took so much of that experience covering the cocaine trade and I wanted to put it down in this book. But I also wanted to do it a bit differently. I felt if you knew about Pablo Escobar, if you, if you had a passing interest in this, I figured you already knew the outlines of the details. Pablo Escobar, the Medellin cartel, the Kylie cartel. I wanted to take the reader and say, this world is so much crazier than you think. This is what it's like to be in the middle of the drug war. This is what it's like to be in the middle of a narco party. All of these narco traffickers are around me. They're all high as kites. Their girlfriends are around me. I'm going to take you in there. I'm going to get you to meet the witch who cast spells for the cartels. These people who we've just never heard of. I'm going to introduce you to the bisexual hitman. I'm going to tell you the jokes that these hitmen share amongst each other. I'm going to get you out to the countryside so you can see the misery that these peasants, these small farmers live in. This is why they grow coca. So I wanted to to make quite a, a kind of exciting. You know, and I set out to make this book as exciting and as thrilling as the cocaine industry itself. I didn't want to include any statistics. That was my original. Now, you know, in the end, I ended up putting statistics. But I wanted a much more kind of a lived-in book. I wanted you to feel what this life feels like. And that was the idea behind the
0: book. I think you succeeded because just even in the introductory chapters, you're out in the jungle describing how these people lived and how kind of nihilistic and... Uh, in fact, really their lives are ephemeral, living short lives, knowing that there's so much chaos from so many different angles. It's really something else. And how much they needed, but detested the cocaine trade. Would you agree that the really, in your time in Colombia, the cocaine trade was probably one of the most dominant industries or kind of cultural influencers?
1: It's not the dominant industry, but it's Trace's if you know what you're looking, for, if you know what you're looking for, can be felt in so much of that country. I mean, in just raw terms, I think it doesn't match. Say, for instance, I think uh, oil is the number one export. I think then it's coal. If we're looking what the estimates of the industry are, but oil is kind of in this limited areas. The impact of cocaine is just felt everywhere from the gangs in every street to the kind of the open air drug markets to a kind of culture of life means nothing, uh, a culture of killing for killing for money. You know, every single major city in Colombia has what's called an office. An office is a collection of uh, sicarios, hitmen, assassins, every major every major city. So if you know the right connections in any city, you can find out where the local assassins for hire are. And it's that culture that has kind of bled out of narco trafficking into the rest of Colombia. And it was little things like this that I wanted to kind of draw the attention to, just small little details that I find fascinating. For instance, Colombia's up there in one of the um, highest levels of plastic surgery in the world, especially in women. And what they suspect happened is, again, these are theories. No one can confirm it or not. But what they believe happened is the cocaine traffickers of Colombia did some of their initial business in strip bars in Texas. So they were watching these six foot Texan women, strippers, as they did business to sell the cocaine. They went back home and told their women. They paid for their women to get the exact same measurements, but on bodies that were five foot two, five foot three. So there became this kind of distorted figure of a woman in these nightclubs with these women with impossibly large breasts, impossibly large backside. That was the drug traffickers taste. That bled into the rest of society. And it's, it was this kind of constant back and forth about how the narcos were influencing the rest of society and society was influencing the narcos. So it was these little tidbits I wanted to get into and show in this book.
0: And you show that like even the music is influenced, you have yeah. like quotes from now so these kind of like narco trafficking songs. Yeah. And I was also surprised kind of, it just felt like at least at the outer, outside of the main cities, like a Wild West, yeah. brothels, violence, fighting in the streets drugs, blowing your money. Going back, can you talk about really uh, what happened in the more tropical rural areas or jungle areas where the really the cocaine comes from?
1: So I went to a zone. I I think it's important to note as well. I just do want to say this just once. I love Colombia. Colombia is a country that has so much to offer. And many people have an amazing time there on holiday. I'm talking about parts of Colombia that are difficult to get to. You can't walk out of your hotel in Bogota, take a wrong turn, and end up in a coca field. You can't. You, you may suffer some urban crime, but, you know, that's living in a city in 2021, mm-hmm. right? So you have to struggle to get to these parts. I went to a place called Catatumbo, which is right up on the border with Venezuela. So that's northeastern Colombia. Catatumbo means the land of lightning. House of Thunder. That's the old indigenous term because there are more lightning strikes in this part of the world than in any other part of the world. For years, um, scientists have been traveling to this part of the world just to study lightning strikes because they're so common. Every night I was there, the biggest thunderstorm i had ever lived through. That's where I decided I wanted to go and kind of hang out with these coca farmers You really see the desperation because there's this constant problem in Colombia that the central government throughout its history has never been able to impose a minimum of law and order. Essentially, it's been weak. So you've had these local fiefdoms, either kind of local politicians, dynasties emerge. You can go to any single part of Colombia, sit in the main plaza, buy yourself a tinto, a little coffee, start chatting to the man or woman next to you and say, hey, who are the who are the families here who control this zone? They'll give you five. You couldn't do that in Washington, D.C. I couldn't sit in any park and say, hey, who are the important families people would look at me? You couldn't do that in Yorkshire.
0: It's feudalism, right? I mean, there's a feudalistic element. It's so feudal.
1: And so you have these peasants. We literally call them peasants because in the real term, it's not a pejorative sense. It's landless workers with sometimes a small piece of land. They often don't have the title to the small farmers, peasants. And therefore, you know, they're they're struggling because the government hasn't built infrastructure. And what I mean by infrastructure is a big word. I'm just talking roads and bridges. When you've got a family out there and there's no road or bridge, tell me what are they supposed to do with one ton of pineapples? How are they supposed to get that to market? But to make one kilo of coca paste, which is, you know, the size of this, you can throw that in your backpack, jump on the back of a motorbike, and then you're in the market town to sell it. So I went out there and hang out with the coca farmers. And just to show how abandoned they are, they had told me that they had just inaugurated this school. They had spent three years raising money by putting a toll on a dirt track. So every time people kind of for business went up and down this dirt track, they had to spend like, I don't know, 30 cents, 50 cents. Finally, they had got $10,000 together to spend, to buy this school, to pay for this school, to construct it. Now they were having to pay for the teacher. But what were people going up and down? What was the business going up and down this dirt track? It was coca. It was cocaine. Cocaine paid for that school. Where the hell is the government? So when people are so abandoned, you know, they end up in this business. Again, they can't traffic. They can't, sorry, take pineapples. They can't take apples to them. So they end up in this. So I wanted to show their stories, you know, see how they live and really kind of give voice to them. Another constant in this book was. Colombians are poets. I don't know why, but the way they speak is so beautiful. And I just wanted to capture that. I felt that's something that only Colombian authors had really paid attention to. And often when foreigners are writing about Colombia, they just have them speak in this very bland way. That's not how Colombians speak. It's very dramatic. It's very poetic. And I kind of wanted to capture that. And you really sense that in the countryside.
0: And you had like words there that come from what? Stripping the cocaine leaves off that's how they got their name. What was the word that you used?
1: So those coca harvesters are called raspachinas. Yeah, raspachinas. And again, Colombia is so funny because you'll hear over the course of working in Colombia, 50 different people say. I was there when they invented the word Raspachin. (laughs) Like the FARC guerrillas were telling me one night when they were still at war, I was there, it was my friend, Don, well, not Don, but Pedro, he was the one who called them a Raspachin. they like, come on, But anyway, so I was there in the field. What was fascinating as well is to see how you also got a glimpse of the crisis in Venezuela because we were right on the border. Walking from where I was staying, I spent about two weeks in this zone, walking, 15 minutes, I would be in Venezuela. Every day, it was like something out of, I don't know, what is it? The Dust Bowl crisis of America, of mice and men. We would see these families of Venezuelans just walking out of Venezuela. They were going to keep walking until they found a job. Literally that level of poverty. So they would stop by every farm. Hey, can I work here? You know, is there a job? No, sorry. We've already got 25 Venezuelans ready to harvest my coca. By the way, the coca, And just to give you an idea of how fertile Colombia is, they're doing in that zone four harvests of coca a year. So we went out with the Venezuelans, they were stripping the coca leaves, you know, they're all joking around. And again, you've got a glimpse of how messed up Venezuela is. I spoke to a guy who used to work in a bank. He was a bank teller. He was a, you know, approving loans and stuff, young man. Now he's stripping coca plants of uh, leaves. And I kind of wanted to follow a whole kilo. So then to see how they took these coca leaves, which are then deposited in a coca lab, they call it a lab, but really it's just four poles of wood and a black piece of plastic, like a black sheet of plastic. That's where they convert the coca leaves into what's called coca paste, which is the first step in the production of cocaine. And it's a kind of three day process. They kind of mix ammonia, they mix, that means gasoline. gasoline, yeah, and exactly, and they kind of extract the cocaine alkaloid out of the leaves, and it ends up with this block. That is what will then they'll sell. um They'll sell that to the cocaine mafias, who will then turn that into 100% cocaine.
0: Right. So you have this moment where it's just you're watching this product go from rural feudal pickers compressed, and then to they bring their product at the weekend. And then the mafia guys show up to haggle or whatever, and the, the kind of peasants go back to pick again, and it all starts over. Can you talk about some of the Wild West kind of yeah. – I think you likened it to Gomorrah, uh, some of these towns. Whatever. Exactly. So this
1: town in particular
0: I went to is called Lagabara. Gabara. Uh,
1: it's, again, in Catatumbo. Um, and it was – it is like the Wild West. It's, it's kind of like the Wild West, but also the Gold Rush, but also, you know, AK-47s in the background. It's this lawless zone. Sure, the police are there, but no one really expects the police to do anything. And all of these coca farmers come in and it's market day. And there's this whole tradition that they're going to come in and sell their block of coca, uh, a coca paste. The price is usually about 1.6 million, which is about $400. This was also something interesting that I hadn't seen reported before. The coca farmers were more bored and annoyed by this industry than I had ever seen before. And the reason being that $400 hasn't gone up for 15 years. So when you got your $400 back in 2005, really the first time I went to one of these coca towns, these guys were buying a bottle of whiskey, you know, I mean, let's just say the things as they were, they would be with two or three prostitutes over the night over the course of a weekend, you would watch them sit at a table, drink themselves into passing out at the table, sleep on the table, wake up eight hours later and start drinking again, that was the party they were doing. Well, now the $400 doesn't doesn't go as far. So now it's kind of like, well, a few rounds of beers, they're still going to get really drunk because that's the tradition. But this is why they're so annoyed by it. Now, the reason why the prices hasn't gone up is because of a stranglehold on the industry. Remember, cocaine is pure economics in its rawest form. 15 years ago, there was more of an open market in these coca towns. Essentially, um, there was a whole there was a whole world of business to be made, connecting the countryside with the cartels. These middlemen, you could make a lot of money buying from the farmers, sell to the cartel. Now what's happened is these militias, these, these narco militias, men in uniform in uniform, have a stranglehold. They're imposing the price. They're a single buyer in that town, they dictate the price. And I wonder if that's not going to backfire off on them at some point in the future. But that's to leave to one side. It's total. It's like Deadwood, but much, much worse. Right. I just, just, it's crazy. But it's there's crazy. Also, yeah. I, I, I'll i be honest. I like the energy. You know, there it's chaotic. Anything can happen at any moment. And it's kind of invigorating that feel of just money passing around. Um, I, you know, I spent a good
0: weekend in La Gavara, Gavara. Still, all right. So you spent a you spent time there. It was interesting. They said, I think you they're in the book that the prostitutes used to go from Colombia to Venezuela, and now it's inverted due to the poverty. And it just is like, like some kind of wild west town. It was just really incredible. So that cocaine gets purchased by these. And in that environment, there's all these Marxist guerrillas, communist guerrillas, uh, Maoists, far right militias. Can you talk about the environment where that cocaine trade happens. I mean, you told her some really interesting stories about how the far right was like uh, killing peasants just to, and putting fake names for money to as like a badge or something. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So that was another reason I chose Catatumbo, this region, because it's one of the rare regions in Colombia where there are so many different groups at that point. So you have The ELN, which is essentially inspired by um, the the Cuban revolution, they're a revolutionary group. You have dissidents of the FARC who claim to be uh, Marxist-Leninists. Then you have the EPL, which is the Popular Liberation Army. They claim to be Maoists. Then you have the AGC, which is actually the largest cocaine cartel, but they kind of have these initials to make them seem a bit more political. They're really not very political. If anything, their politics go to the hard right. But really, it's mainly just money for them. But you see with these organizations, sometimes they like to have a veneer of politics. That's because the stated goal, the stated policy of the Colombian government is we don't deal, we don't negotiate with criminals. So everybody in Colombia often wants to have a veneer of politics to leave open the possibility of negotiating with the um, with the uh, with the government. Catatumbo has these just legendary characters. One I describe in my book is a man called Megateo, And he was this kind of Robin Hood figure, Che Guevara, kind of just local gangster all rolled into one. He was also for many people a man who did well. Colombia is an intensely highly stratified society. As we said, feudal. The chances are if you are born poor in Colombia, you're going to die poor. So when there's a guy who just kicks back at the system and says not for me and rises in the ranks local people sometimes will say hey i may not agree with him but you know i like him and he got his fame by like kind of giving out money to families if they were in need you know you can say it's a cynical reason buying the people's love or sometimes these people really do have an affection the point being he did it when often the scene the government the state was seen as not doing that so that was another lesson if good people and the government don't step in when they should, other people will step in. So I think that's a lesson as well for Colombia to just, you know, they need to get on top of that. And Megatale, you know, he becomes like the lord of this whole region. He invests in snipers. So he's killing policemen. He's killing army as they come and search for him. But in the end, what gets him is these um these undercover agents pretend to be uh weapon salesmen so i think they're going to sell him i can't remember it's in the book but i think it may have been like a, anti- a rocket
0: launcher or something like, launcher. like that that blows up yeah that's
1: right so they've planted explosives in there megateo insists on trying out the rocket launcher himself and well yeah they found parts of him
0: i think but that's, that's like, that. like the whole situation that's uh in your book is just so much chaos but also this kind of patronage the el patron concept you describe people know uh, Pablo Escobar and you see that same thing as Megateo is like the the people from the underclass see this is a Robin Hood who's made his way up whereas the old style families who run Colombia saw somebody like Escobar is like a literal Hitler right so but just the absolutely. chaos that's involved with all those people is just off the charts
1: absolutely and i thought it was also fair that i mean how to put this i you know i don't want to misrepresent this but i thought it was fair to give Both points of view, let's just take Pablo Escobar, because I think it's an interesting example. The highly educated, those who speak English, and by the way, if you speak English, you're Colombia. the chances are you are very close to the top 5%, top 10%. You know, the education system for most people is unfortunately very bad in that country, and it's heartbreaking, and it shouldn't be, because Colombians are naturally very, very smart people. The amount of people who dropped out of school I met, later on I interviewed one called El Pojo. Um, he's a farmer dropped out. He must have been eight years old. Brilliant mind. And you just think, ugh, you know what this guy could have done if he had just been allowed to keep going. But back to this thing, it, when when the Colombian government or highly educated, wealthy Colombians talk to the rest of the world about Pablo Escobar, as you say, it's in comparisons with Hitler. And obviously, Escobar did many, many things terribly wrong. This is, no one's going to deny that. But there is a strain of Colombians who say, you know what? He kicked back. You know, this whole thing is corrupted. At least he went out and tried to, you know, make his own way. You'll often hear people say, if you can speak Spanish and, you know, you're having your little coffee in places like Medellin, you'll hear the old men and women say, nah, you know, when Pablo was around, everybody who wanted to work could work. Remember, he paid for an entire neighborhood. Especially, I would see this in what became his, uh, the kind of, you know, I don't want to minimize it, but his. His famous Hacienda, Hacienda Napoles, his big farm, his big estate. When he died, that was turned into kind of this theme park. And I would see old men bring their grandchildren there and they would point stuff out. They would say, Ah, Don Pablo, Don Pablo, you know, he was good. Don't let, don't listen to what they say about you. I don't agree with that, but I do think it's important to reflect that voice because in the English language, that's just that's just a voice you never you never hear. But it shows the intricacies of how. Deep, this infection of Colombian of cocaine has gone into culture,
0: and the and the corruption, like they're just used to everybody acting corruptly, the government misusing money, the military, and you like point out in your book, like the anti-narcos are end up trafficking. So the people set out to solidify the law are actually doing the complete opposite. I think that it's got to be really just incredible to adapt to that psychologically and politically. In such a corrupt environment, it's got to be really difficult. It is. I mean, I think when you live in
1: Colombia and it's, it's like you carry this anchor around your neck. I mean, it's just that, just the amount of times you've been reading a newspaper and it'll be like, oh, the head of the anti kidnapping brigade arrested for kidnapping. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, and the dirty secrets I think I mentioned in the book is how many of these policemen end up going to the other side. One of the really big ones was a guy called Habon who became this legendarily kind of violent trafficker. He was part of something called the uh, Northern Valley Cartel. It really kind of rises from the ashes. Well, actually helps to push over the edge, the Kali Cartel. Um, and he was a former policeman. But again, if you keep looking through this, the, one of the major trafficker I interview in my book was also coming out of the security forces. For many of them, being in the security forces is for them to learn where all of the chinks in the armor how to get around things. You know, they're getting a crash course. And the entrance into the underworld is very easy. They've got information they can sell. You know, I mean, it's not difficult to find a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend who's interested in purchasing that information. And that keeps on coming up time and time again in this book, that cocaine almost senses... When people are going through a hard time, so whether you be a fisherman, whether you be a policeman, whether you be working in the airport, you know, people hear that you're having a hard time. Ah, you know, well, you know, I could help out. How would you like to make a quick five thousand dollars? That's life changing money in Colombia.
0: Right. Huge, huge amounts of money. I think you said the average like living wage per day is very low compared to the U.S. So some of the numbers that are around there. And I think you in one of your chapters, it was chapter four, you talk about the city percent or Basenio, which shows that coca, how it corrupted the entire city. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was something I found constantly going to these towns. And by the way, I should be uh, I should be clear about this. You know, coca farmers are very open to speaking because they Colombian society, quite rightly, I think, doesn't see them as um, as criminals you know, they see them as they, people understand the hardships of the countryside. So they're often very open to speak about their um, their situation. And what I found was a constant, every time from different parts of the country, it was always the same story. Essentially, you had these kind of dignified, perhaps poor uh, towns that could be cattle farmers, they could be coffee, they could be, you know, they could be anything. Someone, maybe the town goes through a bit of a bad moment, someone, it's always someone comes back from a coca region. There's always one family who starts growing coca, usually far out, far away from the town. Within six months, a year, everybody sees how good that family's doing. And then slowly, 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 well, not so slowly, but then coca spreads and it takes out. At some point, it becomes a snowball that's unstoppable because now that everybody else has stopped spend it. Now everybody stops planting the normal necessities. The price of those necessities goes up. So you're almost forced to start planting uh, coca. And then there's this moment. Everybody's making money and everybody has this same moment. It's the golden time. You're getting away with it. You've cheated cocaine. It's like you've cheated the devil. You've got it all. You've got money. There's more money flowing in than you've ever had. Everybody's doing well. Then slowly starts to tell. Well, just before that, prostitutes start coming in. Well, you know, I mean, it's kind of weird. Prostitutes smell this smell of farmers with money. So there are cases of prostitutes chartering planes to fly into these remote towns so confident they're going to make their money back. But then the dead bodies start turning up because now everybody knows that this town is running on cocoa. So these militias turn up. They want to take control of it. At the same time, other people turn up, doctors turn up, people who sell herbicide. So just like people in the gold rush made money, some made money finding gold, others made money selling shovels.
0: Some of the real money makers were the shopkeepers. They weren't even exactly. the goldkeepers, Stanford and these characters. Exactly. And that's the same thing.
1: You see these mass migrations across Colombia's people chase this coca money and then that's when a kind of social disintegration begins. So what you've got, you've got prostitutes now. So now you've got men who go back, have sex with these prostitutes, go back, and you've got a 16 9 year old peasant woman registering HIV uh, positive, you know, because she's been infected by her husband. You've got farmers running away with prostitutes. You've got a kind of social breakdown that they used to be united around the idea of coca. There's no unity in cocaine. It's every man for himself. So it's this kind of neighbors start kind of spying on each other. So it really destroys the soul of a town. This town you mentioned, Briseño, has a kind of sad story because the government, as part of this peace process with the FARC, it took this kind of small town and the government said, you know what? You're going to be our pilot for the new Colombia. We're going to work with you. You're going to rip out all of your cocoa. We're going to hold your hand. We're going to give you a stipend. We're going to give you money to invest in the new project. Chickens, horses, cows, whatever. Coffee. We're going to work with you. And the the town had meetings. And there was ongoing meetings. They said, should we trust the government or not? Finally, this guy I interviewed, he told me he went to the city, saw an open-air drug market, saw Colombians passed out due to a derivative of cocaine called bazooka. Went home, told the farmers and said, these are our brothers and sisters. We've done that to them. We can no longer deny our responsibility. He convinces the town. They all rip out the coca. The money comes in. Everything's good. The stipend comes in. But when it comes for the project money, the stipend is literally just to feed your children and your wife. But when it comes in for the project money to actually buy the chickens, buy the cows, now there's red paper. Now there's paperwork. Now the guy's not there. Now they can't find it. And it just kind of, the program just kind of withers and dies. And it's just really sad. And the guy said to me, you know what? It took us so much time to try and change our mentality to come back to the legal world. Now we've been betrayed by the government. I'm telling you, this town will go back to Coca any day now.
0: And it's just like a process that's probably taking place all over. And it's really kind of sad. Like the people who know they're getting involved know that their lives are going to be shortened or cursed or their families are cursed, and you talk about the lava violencia, just all throughout the country, like, but they can't get away with it, it's really a, just a difficult situation for them, like, how can you not want to make more money for yourself and your family, knowing that these things can uh, come on, and I think that's really one fascinating aspect of your book, it's not a story of these giant narco-traffickers, it's about cities, and people, mm-hmm. and individual stories, and how they get corrupted, and how they respond. All around. I mean, even you talk about you. You've traveled all throughout that country, so you moved all the way from the east to the western ports. Talk about people getting chopped up and dumped in the bot. It's just really, uh, really something else. Some of the stories that you have in there, it's really something different than I've read. I've read a number of books about the drug trade, but uh, well, thank you. Um, what uh, I mean, can you talk? Do you have other stories? You talk about the assassins or the sicarios or the people. I mean, can you talk about their culture? their lifestyle. I mean, you talk about cutting yourself short. Like a lot of those guys' lifespan isn't very long at all, is it?
1: That's a constant as well, I found in this world that, you know, it is this kind of plan that everyone's going to get into cocaine. And the idea is, you know, they kind of accept that cocaine is a handshake with the devil. And it's kind of like cocaine says, look, I'll offer you the chance to get everything you want. I'm not guaranteeing you anything, but I'll get you the chance to have your actress girlfriend, you know, make millions, fast cars, But the chances are you're not going to live very long in this. And that's this kind of deal in cocaine. And it was fascinating to see how many people expressed regret, but it was too late. You know, when you have been killing for hire for 10 years, there's no second chapter. Come on, man. You're not going to become a veterinarian. That's it. You know, no no one's going to let you walk out of that. There's been a man who's been sending you orders to go kill someone. You are a loose end for your boss. So I did meet this uh, Sicario, as you say, that's what they're called, Sicario, which actually, interestingly, has a kind of, I think it's the. Etymology. It goes all the way
0: back to the Bible. It goes all the way back that uh, supposedly Judas Iscariot might have been a Sicari, which are the guys who were stabbing the Romans.
1: So That's right. Exactly. So I read about them, I think, in. Um, uh, who's his name? St.
0: Joseph? Uh, well there's Joseph of uh, history. Josephus. This he, just was wrote exactly. about
1: he was Jewish and then he kind of. Yeah, he became, a Roman,
0: he became a Roman lackey. I That's guess.
1: right. Exactly. So. Um, but yeah, so this word uh, Sicario. So I interviewed them and this was something, again, one of these kind of again, the constant, I would say, of my book is just the drug world, the drug war. Everything about the drug war is utter lunacy and it's kind of mad tales. And one of them I wanted to show was these men and women mainly men, who are the hired killers, will go and pray to their own statue of the Virgin to bless their bullets, but also to help them in this next mission to go kill someone for money. And I said to him, look, how does this possibly make any sense? And again, it's interesting the kind of the way they dodge responsibility, because he says to me, well, you know, if God didn't want me to, uh, doesn't want me to kill this person, if this person truly is innocent, Then he'll stop me from killing him. I will fail, but if I am successful, that means that God wanted to see him punished. So it's this kind of—I mean—it's just madness. It's total madness. But I'm with this uh, sicario. Um, He's there, and he's praying to the Virgin. We're there as he prays, as he um, as he um, as he uh, blesses these bullets. And that's a very uh, that's a very common part of this world. You know that it. That the Catholic Church is involved in this. You know, there's lots of stories in places like Medellin Cali of these uh, these local members of the church who received significant amounts of money from the cartel in this effort to kind of cleanse their soul.
0: Right. So they're seeking penance or repentance for their actions while they know they're doing it. And that's the kind of heady brew of the Colombian drug trade is that violence and poetry and nihilism and acknowledgement of death like you're not taking the easy route uh somebody asked from the chat if some do you know any stories of people who walked out or were able to get out of the business or there's so few stories of people who took the money and survived like they usually end up dead or in jail what uh do you know anybody who who made it through the i mean to be honest
1: i must do i can't it's a good it's a really good question um But I can't off the top of my mind, but there must be people. I mean, certainly the coca farmers, they can move on. There are places in the country where the militias say anyone pulls out their coca crops, we're turning up, we're going to kill them. Um, But I'm trying to think, cartel people, if you're deep in the cartel, it would be very difficult because you don't go very far in that world by trusting. And the fear is that you're just a loose end. So you can tell me you're going to be straight you can tell me you're going to go straight everything's going to be fine you're never going to talk to the authorities but how do i know you're not going to turn you know how do i know you're not going to get in a drunk driving thing tomorrow smash into a car tell the police please don't charge me i've got some information to show that's the way these men and women think a loose end is just why bother
0: you know All right it's like paranoia too in this whole mix and, and there kind of it's the reverse of this kind of thing of, you know,
1: what was it? Lincoln said, you know, better ninety nine guilty men go free than one English innocent man hang. Well, theirs is the reverse. Better ninety nine innocent men die rather than one guilty man go free.
0: Right. And that's their code. That was like their code, their kind of perverse code of honor. Uh, really great book. Ex- I highly recommend the book and great talk as well. Thanks for sharing the stories from the book. There's a lot more involved in this book. We probably only covered half of it. So people go get this book. Where is the best place for listeners to get Kilo? Uh, Anywhere where they sell books,
1: uh, you know, um, ask your local bookshop, uh, your local bookshop. I know a lot of them have been suffering during this pandemic. It's certainly available on Amazon. Just one final thing we didn't touch upon, which I think is a lot of interest to a lot of Americans. It's really the biggest deep dive I've seen recently on the Coast Guard and what their job is that's this kind of part of the American services that doesn't get this much interest, uh, doesn't get this much attention. I spent two and a half weeks with them patrolling the Eastern Pacific as they were seizing these uh Loads of five, six tons of cocaine. But people can find me on social media at on Twitter at Toby Muse. That's T O B Y M U S E. And yeah, those are the best places. to
0: Twitter, find me. and then your website is Toby Correct? That's correct. Yes. You can kind of see what he's up to. I mean, being on those Coast Guards too; those are huge shipments that they're. I think you told one story out of at least the western coast of Colombia, where like if his shipment made it to the states, it was going to net him like. $9 million or $90 million some huge sum of money. So there's huge risks involved in that, right? Huge risk. But again, I start
1: the thing with the Coast Guard there's actually two Coast Guards are sitting there and they're talking. They say, you know what? I've got a buddy back on the police force back home. They get excited when they find one kilo. They both start laughing because on the deck of this huge half a billion dollar Coast Guard cutter behind us is four tons of cocaine, pure cocaine. And they're just like, that's every day they're seeing it out there in the East right. and Pacific. That's incredible.
0: Great interview. Thanks so much for your time. Again, the author is Toby Muse, and the title of the book is Kilo, Inside the Deadliest Cocaine Cartels from the Jungles to the Streets, published 2020. Tony, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you for the invite. I had a great time. Take care. Stay there. Stay there.